Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Frank Federaca to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Frank is the head coach at Bucknell, and uh, couldn't be more excited to have him on. How you doing, Frank? Uh, doing great today, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. So um, as I do with most uh, of our guests, I would love to hear about your lacrosse journey as a player and then how you got into coaching. So where did it all start, Frank? Yeah, well, it started at Hobart College. I mean, most people would say their lacrosse journey started uh, in fifth grade or at five years old or ninth grade. Mine started kind of my freshman year in college where uh, I was at Hobart and I was uh, I played football in the fall. And then I was actually playing, uh, you could appreciate this, I was playing pickup basketball, noon hoops with uh, some of my friends and the lacrosse coaching staff. Uh, back in my freshman year in 1985 to, to, to put some dates to this. Yeah. And, uh, and Coach Yurik, the head lacrosse coach, saw me, uh, you know, playing basketball and, and thought I was a pretty good athlete. And so after the games, he said, hey, Frank, he goes, uh, you got a minute? He goes, can you come into my office? I want to talk to you about something. And I said, oh, sure, Coach. And uh, I had known that Hobart lacrosse was really successful, but um, – but uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about it because the high school that I came from did not have lacrosse. I could not m- name one lacrosse player in the world to you on that day. And uh, I couldn't even tell you what a lacrosse stick really felt like. I, I knew what one looked like, but I never actually held one. Yeah. And so he brings me in his office and he says, hey, uh, he goes, you see these pictures on the wall? And he points to some guys on the wall. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, he's like, well, you know what they all have in common? And I said, no. He goes, these guys never played high school lacrosse, but they ended up making All-American here at Hobart. And uh, he's like, I'd like for you to be the next guy that, that tries to do that. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really flattering, Coach. Uh, I appreciate it, but um, <clears throat> I'm already committed to play baseball in the spring. And, uh, you know, once I had gotten there, one of my best friends was a uh, future captain of Hobart baseball. And he also played football, and he, he thought I should play baseball. I had a decent baseball career in high school. Um, so I, put, I was playing baseball. I was uh, practicing with the team because it was the winter, and there were some off-season workouts. And he's like, you don't want to play baseball. You know, baseball here isn't uh, a very winning program. And I said, well, I'm already committed to it. Uh, I really don't know anything about lacrosse. I've never seen it. I really appreciate it. I'm flattered. But I'm going to have to say no. And he says, well, I'm a little bit disappointed, but you, you need to know that the door is always open. And so, uh, so I said, okay, thanks, coach. And then I went about my day and about my year. 
and uh, went down south with the uh, baseball team for spring break and was playing in baseball games. And then there was this one day in early April uh, that spring where the baseball team had a doubleheader at Hobart and lacrosse team was playing, Hobart was playing Syracuse. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a great game. Both teams were ranked number one in the country, Hobart number one in Division Three, Syracuse number one in Division One. Hobart uh, ended up beating Syracuse that day, 16 to 13. But throughout the day, there was 8,000 people that went to the game and they were walking past the baseball field. And uh, we only had three people in the stands, one dude's parents and some other guy's girlfriend. And so everybody kept making fun of us. You baseball players, you stink. Why are you playing baseball at Hobart? This is so silly. And, uh, and I was kind of like uh, frustrated and, and bummed out because I could hear the roar of the crowd over the hill all day. And then now these people are all coming back. You guys stink, you're still here. You know, it was an awful eight-hour doubleheader. So that Monday morning, it's like April 3rd or whatever of my freshman year, I, I knocked on Coach Yurk's door at 9 a.m., like basically in the middle of baseball season. And I said, Coach, is the door still open? He goes, absolutely. He's like, come on in. And I said, I want to play lacrosse. Can I do that? And he goes, yeah. He goes, let's take a walk. And I was like, where are we going? He's like, well, to the baseball coach's office. You're going to quit baseball right now. I was like, oh, I was thinking maybe more like next year. He's like, yeah, no, we're going to do this right now. So we walked over to the baseball coach's office, and, uh, and I basically quit baseball. And the coach was an old guy, and he goes, ah, that's all right. You swing like a rusty gate. Anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and so I practiced that afternoon with Danny Whalen out on Boswell, first time I ever played catch with an old shotgun, a leather store-strung stick. And, uh, and uh, I practiced with the JVs for a few weeks, and then the season was over. And ended up making the varsity the next year. And, uh, and so then, and, and, and that was a really great experience because we did win the national championship every year I was there. And I always wanted to be a coach. So after my, my college career, I wanted to be a football coach. And I had a lot of success on the football field and uh, got offered a couple great jobs, one of which was Springfield as a grad assistant for football. So I took that job. And then over the summer, I get a phone call from Keith Bugby, the lacrosse coach at Springfield. And he says, hey, I heard you're coming to Springfield to coach football and be a grad assistant. He goes, but I have a grad assistant position open and I want you to be my grad assistant also. And I was like, oh, you don't want me to coach. I said, I've only been playing lacrosse for three years. And uh, I don't really know a whole lot about it. There's no way I can coach lacrosse. And he's like, no, you played at Hobart. You, you know, you, you can do this. You, you probably know more than you think. And so uh, very similar to how I played lacrosse, someone had to twist my arm to get into the coaching world of lacrosse. And uh, I, I took it and I coached both football and lacrosse for a couple of years and then made the decision to uh, focus on lacrosse at the end of those two years at Springfield. Awesome. And, so that's a, that's a little bit of a journey just to get into coaching yeah. lacrosse, you know, and playing. You remember the 1989 North-South game when we were teammates on the North team? Yeah, yeah, it was good times right there. That Old was. school, man, yeah. It was, uh, for people that don't know, um, the North-South game was really special back then. It was just such an honor to be in it, but they treated you so well. It was like a three-day, two-night affair. You stay in the dorms at Hopkins. You have, you know, a couple practices a day with scrimmages against, you know, other all-star teams. Who did we play? Do you remember? Do you remember the scrimmage we played? Uh, I'm trying to think. I can't, I can't remember. Just Baltimore, like, you know, Baltimore all-stars thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those club teams. Champions was the, uh, the game. Washington or something. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. It was so cool. Our team was pretty good. We had Schmoles. <laughs> um, the late, great Paul Schmoller in the net. Sal Acasio yeah. in the net. Zonzo Birdie on attack. Yeah. Fun, yeah. fun times. Good, good group of guys. How did you end up at Bucknell? Yeah, so so actually it's this is this is also interesting, right? For so so guys that are into young coaches or aspiring to be coaches. Um, you know, I, I got offered a job out of grad school at Maine Maritime to coach to be an assistant football coach 
the head lacrosse coach, and the sports information director. And the Zambo driver on the side? And if I lived on the ship, I could live for free and eat for free. And it was $16,000 a year. And I called my parents and my dad said, oh, Frankie, you got to take it. You got to take it. And I'm thinking, wow, I want to be a lacrosse coach, not really a football coach. I'm going further away from Baltimore, Maryland, not closer to the Mecca. Uh, so I turned that job down and I took a job at Fairleigh Dickinson. Oh, yeah. Wayne Braxton for about two or three weeks. And the students came back on campus. I remember it was my first, first day there. And, uh, and the Hobart job opened. Tim Clark was the assistant, not Hobart, uh, Buck Bell job opened as an assistant. Tim Clark was the assistant. He took the head job at Worcester. And he called me. He was a former teammate of mine. He said, hey, man, he goes, I just left this position. You're a perfect candidate for this position. You should call Coach Jameson. And I was like, oh, I just took this job at Fairleigh Dickinson. And, uh, and I, I ended up thinking about it overnight. And I called Coach Jameson. And he brought me in for an interview. And I ended up getting offered. So I had to leave Fairleigh Dickinson, you know, only after a couple of weeks. And that was a tough decision because I had committed to them. But um, it was uh, too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so I spent two years with Coach Jamison at Bucknell. And then I got the head job at Franklin and Marshall. Uh, and I was there for five years. And then I actually came back to Bucknell to take the same position. Yeah. Because uh, my wife at the time was uh, the head women's basketball coach. So I moved my family. So, I, so we went back to, to Bucknell together. And then, so what years were you at head coach? Yeah. So the first time I got to Bucknell was for the seasons of 92 and 93. Then I was at Franklin and Marshall from 94 to 98. And then I got back to Bucknell in the fall of 98 and uh, was the assistant for seven years and then became the head coach. Now I've been the head coach for the last 15 years. So 05, 98 to 05, you were the assistant? Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Please um, tell us a little bit about your mentors along the way, uh, Coach Yu and a bunch of uh, assistant coaches and all the way through Coach Bugby and, and of course, finishing up with Coach Jamison. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, <clears throat> I've been coaching for 31 years, and uh, my tree above me isn't that large. I mean, you know, Coach Urich was a big influence and uh, a Hall of Fame guy and uh, really just um, somebody that you could learn so much from and try to emulate. Uh, but he was just my, my coach as a, you know, as a player. And of course I was new to the sport. So I took in a lot of his big picture things, uh, similar to what we talked about earlier today, some mannerisms, but some overall philosophies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was all about energy and enthusiasm and, uh, and playing hard and playing as a team and keeping things simple. Um, and, and, and on that staff was Mark Van Arsdale, who also was um, a, a mentor of mine and someone that I'd always looked up to and, and has gone very, very far and is still coaching today, you know, at Loyola. Yeah. Uh, so he was, he was a big influence and someone that was on that staff. And then uh, my next guy I worked with was Coach Bugby, who um, – who also keeps things really simple. You know, Coach, Coach Bugby is not known for his X's and O's uh, or his strategies, more so than um, his recruiting, his connection with players, and the effort that they give. And uh, so that was a great opportunity because I was thrown in immediately as the defensive coordinator. So I graduated from Hobart, had only played for three years, and all of a sudden I was the defensive coordinator. And um, – you know, and recruiting and all that kind of stuff. So that was, that was a great opportunity. But um, so I learned more big picture stuff. I didn't really learn X's and O's from Coach Bugby, um, more so than how to just kind of lead a team. And then, of course, I spent two years with Coach Jameson uh, at Bucknell. And uh, that's probably where I learned the most about coaching lacrosse, uh, certainly from a strategy standpoint and uh, game planning. And then in terms of recruiting and scouting and, and looking at talent and evaluating and just the ins and outs, because Coach Jamison ended up coaching lacrosse at, at Bucknell for 37 years. 
Amazing. And so uh, he had already been coaching it uh, for about uh, 20, 22, 23 years before I got there. So he was set in his ways and was very defined in his um, coaching philosophies. So, so I learned a ton in those two years. I was like a sponge because, again, I had not even seen lacrosse. The first game I saw was the first game I played in. That's amazing. With, uh, a JV scrimmage, you know, so in college. Um, and then, uh, and then I, had, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, then I had to start creating my own stuff because I was a young head coach after only four years of being an assistant at Franklin and Marshall, I was the head coach. And, uh, and so I had to read books from Coach Urek, from Bob Scott. I, I looked up a lot of different things on clearing and riding and uh, just teaching techniques. And now all of a sudden I had to coach offensive guys. And, you know, I wasn't even sure, you know, how to teach a split dodge, a roll dodge, a face dodge. So, so I kind of had to self-teach a lot of that stuff <clears throat> to myself. And, uh, and I thought that was really a, a really important part of my development because I really had to be a student of the game and ask a lot of different coaches, a lot of different questions. And uh, when I went to summer camps, it wasn't as much in those days, you, you know, everybody was teaching at camp still yeah. and you had to work drills and everything. And I was just absorbing and taking in everything. When someone taught a face dodge drill or how to shoot the lacrosse ball or, you know, how to throw a takeaway check or something, I was, uh, I was the one learning more so than the, than the campers. Yeah, like you probably remember your, where you first heard of the, a move called the question mark. Yes, sir. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you know, I, I remember B.J. O'Hara teaching us how to hold the lacrosse stick properly. And it wasn't until two years after I graduated from Hobart College that I learned how to actually hold the lacrosse stick the proper way. With really light, light fingers and run your fingers up the shaft and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, pretty interesting experience too because you were like in this major learning mode as all coaches are as young assistants and then you all of a sudden are a head coach and now it's drinking from a fire hose you have you're responsible for everything and you don't have anybody to ask you have to literally figure it all out um that combination was probably pretty uh important for your development it really was uh especially back in 1994 or whatever that was, 93, um, you know, there weren't as many programs, there weren't as many camps, there weren't videos, you didn't watch lacrosse on television, there was no internet. Um, so it was really, uh, it was really difficult and you had to be real proactive and you had to go around and meet with coaches and, uh, and you really had to, to kind of invent uh, your own systems. And that's a lot of what we do at Bucknell certainly is borrowed, but a lot of it is really just my own take on things and my own, you know, interpretation of the way guys were doing it just by watching film and just creating my own system. Yeah. So interesting. And then you came back as an assistant coach after having been a head coach for five years. Um, what, how was that different for you and how did you leverage that to help the program and what were you learning at that time? Yeah. And so obviously anybody that's been a head coach knows how important the assistant coach is. Right. And you don't really realize uh, from a player standpoint or from even as an assistant coach, how important the role of the assistant coach or the assistant coaches are. And so once I was a head coach and I came back, I understood the value that the assistant coach has, and he really drives uh, a lot of what's going on in the program, whether it be with the alumni, the parents, the players, because no matter what program you're in or how much you're winning or losing, there's always going to be people that question things. And a lot of times the first person they come to is the assistant coach. And the assistant really has to be uh, approachable, but also very diplomatic and uh, extremely loyal to the head coach and the and everything that he's doing, you know. And I always, when I interview assistant coaches, I always say, "Can you tell me what your idea of an assistant coach is?" And they'll tell me, and then I'll say, "Well, listen. The first thing you need to know about an assistant is there's the word assist 
in the word assistant. And your whole job is literally to assist the head coach. So I'm excited to learn from you and hear your techniques and philosophies. But at the end of the day, your job is to help me be successful at what I'm trying to do, not at what you're trying to do with your own agenda. Because if you ever lose sight of that, then I got to go find somebody else that can help assist me in what I'm doing, not with helping you to what you're doing. Yeah. So, so, so it was, I was, it was easy for me then to be a really effective assistant coach because I dedicate everything I did to help the head coach. Right. Things were changing a lot in division one lacrosse. You know, by the time you got back, you know, between 98 and 05 and things, there was, there was a lot, you know, of accelerated evolution development of everything from skills and, and the, the quality of players that you were recruiting to the, the X's and O's to just the parity, which continues. Um, can you speak a little bit about, about that experience? Absolutely, yeah. So especially from 98 to 05, there was this huge change in terms of being able to evaluate prospects. So now there was, it was, you know, it probably still is the fastest growing sport in the United States, but it was really growing fast in those days. And so there was lots of different players, lots of different camps and shootouts and, and uh, places that you can go to evaluate kids, two, three, four, 500 kids at a time. And instead of just driving four hours and watch two teams play and not knowing who was committed anywhere, who wanted to play football in college or lacrosse in college. And, you know, maybe you watch two or three kids and then you call the coach the next day and you're like, yeah, I like that kid. And he's like, yeah, well, he's going to go so-and-so to play football. It's like, oh, wow, that was a great trip. You know, I mean, so, so now, you're able to, yeah, now you're able to go and watch four or 500 kids that want to play college lacrosse. And that was really the beginning of those times back in the late 90s. Uh, and then also film exchange. You know, there was a time where you would call coaches and say, hey, what are they running on offense? What kind of man down do they have? Are they a four-man rotation or a five-man rotation? Uh, you know, and do they ride hard and, you know, whatever. So, I mean, that's how you got ready for, you know, who's their best attackman? What's his favorite move? I mean, you would ask coaches this because there were – not everybody filmed games and not many people shared them. And then, so you would have film exchange agreements and, uh, and maybe you'd get three games on a, on a team that you could watch or one game or whatever. So that was during that time where, uh, you know, the strategies became more intricate because you learn more about your opponent. So you can make more adjustments on a week to week basis. And, in the old days, it was focusing more on what you did. And I thought that that period of time was a time where now you can start focusing on what your opponents are doing. And, uh, and then you really had to change your system because if you kept your system too simple, you know, other people could to dictate, you know, what you could or could not do. And uh, you had to have other options. So you became the head coach in 06 that was your first year or 05 06 06 yeah we had a good we had a good matchup then uh, bucknell at denver on easter sunday 2006 yeah um, it was um there's probably a combined 47 turnovers in that game because both of us had these insane rides and pressure and all that stuff. Um, yeah we did we we both probably had games on friday and that was a sunday game i know we played air force i think on friday and uh you know yeah or something i can't remember it was a hot day it was a really hot sunny day that day at denver and uh, it was a relatively higher scoring game and it was a lot of back and forth up and down it was exciting yeah, yeah that was that was good lacrosse and that was you know back then you were really just i don't know how many years into it you were but you'd begun to create this identity for bucknell lacrosse with your ride and i would love to hear uh, about that and, and kind of where it came from and how it's evolved. Um, yeah. From then yeah. To yeah, sure. Well, I think my riding uh, started back at Hobart. We had a nine man ride and we had a 10 man ride and uh, we were either in one or the other. <clears throat> and we actually used the 10 man 
a little bit when I was at Hobart. And as a player, as a long stick midi, I enjoyed that, that riding because it gave uh, you the opportunity to be more aggressive and, and use some good athletes in the middle of the field. So that's where I got introduced to the concept of 10 man riding. And then um, didn't do any of that at Springfield college. And then, uh, and then at Bucknell, we didn't 10 man, but coach Jamison was huge on riding and his whole thing was to ride differently. And uh, maybe we had a total drop back ride where the attack just covered midfielders and you let the D the D goalie D walk the ball up the field and even walk it over the midline and then have your long stick midi ready to attack. Or we'd have, uh, you know, a, a press where all three attackmen would be down and maybe no middies would, it, would join, but, but we just catch them with their guard down. Or maybe we have two attackmen down and they bump and chase. Uh, and in those days you could substitute on the horn and put in a riding team. Yeah. But, but we spent a lot of time in practice on riding. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure out which ride would work best against what team. And so that's where I discovered um, the importance of riding. And we never 10-manned. But, but then when I became head coach, I, 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 I took it to another level. You know, I, I wanted 10-man riding was, was very rare, especially at the Division I level, because the, the guys can handle the ball pretty well. And uh, if they break the, the ride, then usually, you know, they're going to get a pretty good shot. And so a lot of people were hesitant to 10-man ride for two reasons. One, it could be very um, heartbreaking if, if they score against it. It's, yep. it's like a huge hit in football or a huge save in lacrosse where it can change the momentum of the game. Um, and then the other thing is, like, I think that people didn't do is because they really weren't sure how to you know, and come up with the proper rules and, uh, and really make it effective. And so, so we spent a lot of time on it and we would spend, and we still spend anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes a day on riding. And uh, some days it's even more like there's some seasons where we dedicate the time from after fall balls over, say October 15th until Thanksgiving. So a five or six week period where we just, we focus on riding for five or six weeks on top of some other things, but we stay sharp on other things, but our focus of that five week period would be riding. Some years our focus of that five week period would be ground balls. Some years our focus would be, you know, transition or whatever, but some years it's literally riding every day, all day. Um, so that's, that all happened from those years with coach Jameson. Yeah. And then in terms of the 10 man riding, I mean, we have lots of different ways to 10 man ride different areas where we pick the ball up, um, different ways to funnel the ball, different guys to help out, um, where we bring our goalie, you know, where we put our poles. Um, you know, there's just so many different things you can do with 10 guys. Yeah. Uh, you can go zone, you can go man, you can have some guys in zone some guys in man, uh, you can make it look like a 10 man when it's not, but then a team has to get in a 10 man clear. They have to assume you're in a 10 man ride. So they're in a, they're in a clear that they shouldn't be in. And we're in a, we're in a fake 10 man and they're going through the motions and they're panicking or they're chucking it or whatever their plan is. So, uh, you know, when you do 10 man riding for as long as I have 15 years straight, You've basically seen it all. You know, the second someone has an adjustment, I'm like, oh, they're trying to do this? Okay, so then we need to do this. So it turns into a rock, paper, scissor thing for me. Yeah, and you guys are just going to be better at it than your opponent generally because you practice it a lot more than they will. Yeah, so that's, that's a really great point. And, and I, I like to think of the wishbone or the triple option in football uh, or the Baltimore Ravens now, right? So – You've got Lamar Jackson running the option, and, and it's hard for even Bill Belichick to get ready for that in five days. It's a completely different offense that they have to defend. And so 10-man riding is the same way. You know, They're only doing it for five or six days going against the 10-man in practice, whereas we're, you know, we do it all year. And like I said, sometimes we do it all fall. And, uh, and so it's easy for us on game week to just go like, oh, okay, we're going to do this for five minutes today. 
and we're ready to bring the house on you. And they've been working on a half hour day and now they can't do their man up or their man down or they have to take time away from Something their else. defensive scout or whatever it is. Or maybe they have to extend practice by a half hour, which would be great. I would love it if everybody, you know, were on their feet an extra half hour a day just to get ready for our ride. And we're not on our feet for an extra half hour a day. So it has huge advantages. How much of it is about individual riding ability versus how much of it is about scheme? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the better athletes you have, the better riding team you can be. And for us, through the years, sometimes our attack, they're very skilled, but they're not very good at riding, right? So we, for years, had a crease attackman who wasn't a ball carrier, which meant he probably wasn't really fast. And in some cases, he wasn't very big. So we'd sometimes have a five foot eight crease attackman that couldn't really run, and he's out there trying to ride. So that's kind of where I created this ability to zone with the attack and, um, and then do whatever I want with the midfielders and defense. You know, they could be in zone or they could be in man. But when you have attackmen helping out attackmen, um, then you don't really necessarily need great athletes to do it. It's more about technique, positioning, and uh, executing the system or the game plan. Yeah. You watch some teams like Virginia last couple of years, they've had some attack that are just, they make the ride look easy. Jack <laughs> you down, you know. Uh, but when you can have the combination of scheme and athletes, then it's, you know, it, it's a total game changer. Yeah. I think Lars did a great job last year. We scrimmage them every year. And I'm sure he's probably videotaping from the end zone view and, you know, wide view and everything during our scrimmage. But, uh, but that's fine. But, but I think they've done a really good job with their 10 minute ride. And I think it helped them win the national championship. No doubt. Um, another question is when you're thinking about statistically um, where you want to be with your ride and um, how much statistically does it help you win games? And specifically, what's the difference between helping you win the 50-50 games and then helping you win the games that are, you know, you're the underdog? Well, there's, that's, there's a lot right there. Um, so when we go into a season, you know, if we're going to play 15 games, I could, I'll tell my assistant straight up going in, we will win at least three games this year just because of the ride. Games that we probably would have lost, we're going to win just because of the ride. Now, I don't know what three games those are going to be, but I bet you on average we win at least three games a year just because the other team just can't clear against it, right? And, um, and in terms of percentage, you know, this year we finished uh, – now you can see the stats for every team – and we were the number one riding team in the country. So teams only cleared against us uh, successfully 69% of the time, right? So, so that adds up quite a bit. And um, so the, the, the whole idea of it is like, so normally teams clear at 90-something percent. And so if you can, if the team tries to clear it 25 times and you stop them 19, or they only clear it 19 times, or sometimes 17 times or 15 times, those are eight extra times, eight, eight possessions where you don't have to play defense. Yeah. And now you're playing on offense again. So if you get it back off the ride, A, they might have clearing middies in. Uh, and so now they're trying to play defense with, with four, four shorties. Uh, or now we're on offense again, we wear them down, and we, let's say we don't score. Now they have to clear it again. So that gives us another opportunity for – yeah, that now that gives us another opportunity to ride it back. And it's a lot harder to clear after you just failed to clear and just played defense a second time. So it becomes this domino effect. And when you can get into a riding rhythm, uh, it really can change the complexion of the game. And then it saves our legs on defense. So when we stop a team from clearing it, we didn't even have to play defense and we didn't even have to, to waste any energy. So now we have fresher legs on defense and hopefully we can stop them uh, six on six at a higher percentage because we're not playing as much six on six. I mean, it's the, it goes really deep. 
It's yeah. just the face-off, right? So winning a face-off puts us on offense. Obviously, we have a chance to score. Now they have to stop us, scoop it, and then clear it, and then, you know, and then score against us. Whereas if we just lose the face-off, they've already cleared it, and now we're playing defense, and now we've got to stop them, get the ground ball, and clear it. So the riding and clearing game is so important right after a face-off. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that – I think it can have a huge effect – and obviously, we spent a lot of time on it, but, um, you know, it allows us to, to be aggressive, and, and it helps our team defense, frankly. You know, having guys slide all over the place in the riding game fits in really well with our team's six-on-six -six sliding package that we have. I remember one thing lear I learned from you was that, that, that really athletic defenseman from San Francisco, Michael Abu Jadi. <laughs> Sometimes that's a tough one to say. <laughs> totally. But I remember you but, trying to pronounce that back in the day, and it was kind of funny. I really – it was quite funny. But I remember that kid, like, he'd be covering the offense side attackman, and then all of a sudden he would just sit there at the midfield line. The goalie would come out and kind of back him up, and when his man would go down the field, and bang. It was, like, the simplest way to get into – a 10 man where you've just jammed up the offense side with an unbelievable athlete who can go over the midline and probably be outside if he needs to be and, yeah. um, and buy you time to, uh, to sub if you want to and be into your 10 man. But yeah, uh, just a tribute to that athlete. He was a good athlete. Yeah. yeah that's what we try to do. Obviously we try to bring our best athlete up there that has the mindset first of all, but then also the, uh, the physical tools to execute, you know, sliding and, and double teaming and then actually throwing a nice check when he gets there. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about defense. Um, another passion of yours, and it's another signature. And I, I think that's one of the cool things about your program is that you've created, you know, this, these different signatures of what you guys do really well. Um, and I remember going against you guys, I don't know, maybe in 07 or 08 and at Bucknell. And man, that defense was just insane. It, it, it seemed like you just slid so early, but then you'd move the ball and there'd be nothing open. And then when you try to get it backside, there'd be another pull on the ball. Yeah. And, and I'm just curious how it's all, how you came up with that. Obviously, it was, it was a Bill Tierney, you know, was, was the inspiration for a lot of us on defense. Right. But how did it evolve? Um, and um, where is it now? Yeah, so the, the first time I really thought about being so aggressive on defense was when Princeton played Maryland in the national championship. Oh, man, it might have been back in uh, – and Princeton won it. It might have been like in 01 or something like that. I'm not sure what year it was. But it was on TV, and I videotaped it with my VHS uh, recorder. And then I broke down the game after, and uh, every goal that, that Princeton scored against Maryland was unassisted. And I was like, wow, Maryland's just not sliding. What, what, a, what a waste. They could have just – this guy's standing right there, and he's watching them go right past him. He could have just – and then Princeton slid to everybody. And, um, and I tallied up the goals, and then the Maryland scored – maybe two goals the whole game where Princeton didn't slot. And so I thought, you know, this is a good way to stop people. I didn't think Princeton's players maybe were as good as the Maryland defenders, but uh, their team defense was much better. And I thought, well, you know, at Bucknell, we don't have scholarships and we, we you know, we're trying to, to win the national championship with guys that aren't the same as what Virginia or Maryland has. So we need to have a team, team defense and we need to slide – um, and I was a football guy and I had football background, which is, uh, which is a big part of it. But, um, in terms of the sliding, we do slide. We, 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 we basically slide to everything. We have the ability to fake slide and we have the ability to, to push you down the side, to push you to the middle, to play you straight up, to slide early, to slide late, to slide from the crease, to slide from the adjacent, to stay on to not peel, stay on the ball, or the slide guy actually peels, or the guy on the ball peels. I mean, there's so many different ways 
that we can do it. The first slide could be off the crease. Um, the next slide could be adjacent. And then, you know, you can go adjacent, adjacent, then crease. So there's lots of different packages. And, and through the years, we've created a matchup zone. So, you know, when you, when you watch us and you change your formations, you'll notice that we're, our guys are freezing. They're not, they're not moving around with the offensive guys. Um, so, so we like to get to spots and we like to have our shorties in certain spots and we like to have our close defensemen in certain spots. And it's probably not a great idea to have short sticks ISOed one-on-one -on -one behind. So we don't do that. You, you won't ever see a Bucknell short stick behind the goal covering somebody unless we're in our hammer defense. And uh, that's our invert defense. And a lot of people even call it hammer defense. But that was created out of necessity because we didn't have short sticks that slid. And I can go back to my Franklin and Marshall day that we didn't have short sticks that could cover. Um, that goes back to my days at Franklin and Marshall where we played Salisbury. We were ranked fourth in the nation. They were first in the nation. They beat us 38 to five. And uh, like that sounds ridiculous, but they inverted the whole game. And we just tried to slide or play man to man. And, and it was a joke. And I felt completely outmatched or out strategized. And I had to invent uh, you know, a zone type defense when our guys get inverted. I'm sure they were already out there. Yeah. But I was in Division Three at the time, and we didn't use it when I was at Bucknell the first time through. Nobody inverted us. <laughs> or if they did, we had good enough shorties to cover. It wasn't an issue yeah. in those two years. And then in those days, I had to kind of create my own version of, you know, the invert zone defense. Um, so, so a lot of it's, you know, getting guys – putting guys in positions where they can have success and, and not asking too much of the individual. You know, it's just like, look, if we can create a system that allows these guys to have physical success and win their matchup, whether it's just pushing a guy down the side or sliding on time, then I think we can have success. And so the whole idea of the defense is to attack the offense and take them out of rhythm and dictate and, um, you know, there's some things that come to mind right away when, when I think of our defense. And uh, one of them is be aggressive, not only with your body, but your body language, right? So if you're going to slide, it's important that your teammates know you're going to slide. So let's get some real, real good body language, you know, because it's one thing to communicate verbally. It's another thing to communicate visually. Yeah. So be aggressive not only with your, with your check and sliding hard, but be aggressive with your body language before you even slide. And also be aggressive with your decisions, right? So if you're going to go, go. If you think you're supposed to go, maybe you're supposed to go. You're not sure. Everything just happens so fast. Then you need to go. Better to have two than none. You know, better to have two guys slide than nobody slide. Yeah. Back to the Maryland versus Princeton game in 2001. That's a good one. And, and better, to, better to slide early than late, you know? Um, so if you think you go, then go and go hard. So, so those are the kinds of things that we think about on our defense. And, um, you know, obviously we, we, we try to make it look a certain way and do something different. We, we want to be as unpredictable and as unconventional as possible. You know, if it's different, then that's good for us. It seems like defense has evolved, and I'm sure yours has too, and it seems like it's evolved to a lot of people slid to everything, you know, in the early 2000s, like I said, kind of following the lead of, of those Princeton teams. Mm -hmm. and then it seems like now people are much more trying to be hard to beat and read, you know, the quality of defense on the ball, and everybody's reading that. Um, how do you how have you evolved that way? Yeah, so so then that brings me back to uh, a game that we played in the Patriot League Championship, Colgate versus Bucknell. Oh, maybe uh, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. Um, they scored 17 goals on us. That was the most goals I've I've ever given up as a coach, and uh, we literally could not stop them, no matter how we slid or where we slid from. Uh, they always had an answer. And so then we had, out of necessity, we had to create, you know, the defense that you're talking about now where you play more straight up on the ball, 
Yeah. Or maybe you shake somebody's strong hand and you don't go unless you really have to go. And maybe you kind of come halfway and go back. Um, so we had to, we had to have a defense because certain offenses are really good against early sliding defenses, right. but they're not as good against late sliding or no sliding defenses because you either are, you're working on that all year uh, to go against the early slide or you're not. I mean, so what we've done is we now have, we have three different defenses. We have a defense where we play straight up on the ball and we don't go. So we have to do a lot of drills during the year to play straight up on the ball, to, to play straight up off the ball and show and, and hedge and recover. And then we have a zone defense. So, you know, now we can, we can switch our defenses within possession. So we do that when we play, we play a lot of six on six in practice. I mean, we play at least a half hour of six on six every day. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on transition. We don't spend a lot of time on other things that, you know, we, a lot of our time is spent on six on six defense and riding and clearing. And with the six on six, we can go early slide defense and then the ball goes out of bounds and now we're in a zone and then they throw it up top and now we're in their no slide defense and it didn't even go out of bounds yet. So, you know, we can change defenses uh, really while the ball's in play. Again, the whole idea is to try to confuse the offense, but not confuse ourselves. Yeah. Awesome stuff. And then offensively, you guys have run a lot of different offenses. You've had a lot of different offensive coordinators. What's your overall view on that? And how do you let those guys um, bring new things to you and your program? Yeah. So, so my offensive coordinator uh, has full reign over the offense um, and he can run whatever sets he wants, but generally speaking, offensively, uh, we need to have guys that make really good decisions. We respect the ball. We move the ball. Uh, we attack. We put our guys in, in positions where they can have success. We always want, you know, you want to have a good shooter taking a good shot from a good spot. And not everybody has a good lefty time in room from 10 yards. So, so we're not going to put somebody there that can't shoot it. So long story short, I want our guys to be in, positions where they can have success and I could, I could care less of what formation it is but at the end of the day we're gonna we're gonna break down the other team's defense and we're gonna attack them in their weak spots we're gonna try to expose their weaknesses and take advantage of our strengths and so whatever that that offensive coordinator needs to do to make that happen is, is totally up to him yeah cool um, last topic here is recruiting um, interested in hearing what you're looking for in kids, uh, big picture and specifically as it relates to the various positions. So let's let's start on defense. It it used to be that you guys were looking to swell the defense. That's right. That's a great word. I literally use that word. I don't know if you you know you you actually came up with that word on your own right now. If that's something you remember from I back. I remember then. that. I, I did yeah. not. Yeah, we literally tried to swell the defense with four six foot four poles. And when, you know, when you put those guys in the hub, we call it the crease area, the hub, the, the central location, uh, you know, it's tough to get through them, even if they're slow afoot uh, to have huge guys. But, but because of um, the sliding that we do, it's, it's more important to have guys that can move their feet. Um, so big picture defensively, guys need to be able to move their feet and they really need to be able to play good team defense. And that's really hard to evaluate when you're going to camps or even just watching them play in high school because not everybody's rotating. Uh, so you really got to take a, take a good look at what they're doing off the ball. If they're trying to help out, you know, and if they do slide, are they able to shuffle and move laterally once they've been moving forward? Cause it's really hard to, to run at a guy. And then, you know, especially at a guy that's running at you and then turn him East West uh, and not allow him to just go right through you or, or, or around you. Um, so we're looking for foot speed. We're looking for alertness and uh, athleticism. You know, I like guys that play different sports, especially basketball. Um, but that doesn't always happen. But, uh, you know, guys that play multi-sports and, and can move and that are aggressive with their, with their decision-making. Uh, and we, we go less on stick handling, less on takeaway checks, and more on body movement for our defensive guys. Now – 
in the spirit of stick handling, you're, you're, you're a, a big time ride team, but you also have to clear. There's a 20 second clock, which existed, went away and now it's back, which is good for you guys in your ride, I'm sure. But yeah. you know, it, there is a premium on clearing the ball also. Yeah. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate. Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time we got a ring that we never wore. The second time we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Yeah, so... You know, we're in a position where we can't really, we can't get everything in a defenseman, right? So I have to pick it. So there are some defensemen that are out there for us that don't move as well as some other guys. And the beauty of our defense is because it is a zone, matchup zone, we have different positions within our defense. And there are certain guys that need to be able to cover and certain guys that need to be better at sliding and handling the ball. So, you know, I, I need two guys that can cover and I need one guy that, that can handle the ball and he doesn't have to cover. And then so out of the other two that, that cover, one of them's got to be decent enough to handle the ball to go with the other guy that can actually handle the ball. So we got to have one good stick handler, one decent stick handler, and then we get the other guy the heck off the field. And, uh, and we try to find our short sticks and, and get it up and out before uh, the other team can get in the ride. Got it. All right. So what are you looking for in middies? Yeah. So midfielders, you know, they've got to be able to break down the defense and, and, or shoot it from, you know, 14 or 15 yards. You know, I think in terms of midfielders, if you can't break down the defense, uh, you know, it really takes the pressure off of the other team's defense. So we need midfielders that can move, beat people in a phone booth, if you will, and uh and or shoot through a defender so if you dodge down the righty alley and you're still kind of covered are you strong enough to shoot it through that short stick defender uh even though nobody slid to you uh can you still score on that guy so we're looking for midfielders that can create their own shot and then of course the next phase of that would be looking for midfielders that can create their own shot so now they can draw a double team but then also have the ability to either feed or get the ball out of their stick cleanly. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think they need to shoot it with, with both hands, uh, time and room, but they should be able to shoot it with both hands on the run so that, you, you know, so that the other team can't just funnel them one way and then not have to slide to them. So you have to be effective at shooting the ball on the run with both hands, maybe from like 10 yards out, and at least have a 14-yard time and room with one of your hands and break down the defense. And then, of course, have a mentality to get back and ride. Do you, yeah, I was going to say, are you, are you playing two-way minis whenever you can? Is that, or, or are you playing offense? Defense? No, so we literally <laughs> – you're going to appreciate this, Jamie, probably more than anybody on the planet. Um, <laughs> our offensive midfielders don't play defense. So this year we played six games and two scrimmages, and then it got, it got canceled. It got shortened. But through those eight contests, there wasn't one possession where an offensive midfielder played defense. Uh, and last year, there was not one out of 17 games where an offensive midfield, midfielder played defense. How do we do that? Because we leave two middies on to ride every time. We don't run two middies off. We run one midi off, and we leave two on to 10-man ride. And this year, I think we 10-man ride every possession the whole season except for uh, – maybe half against Ohio State. Otherwise, we, we literally 10-man road Virginia in the scrimmage, the whole scrimmage, Towson in the scrimmage, the whole scrimmage. And then of the other six games we played, 
We were in a 10-man ride every possession. So we left two old middies on the whole year. Um, so when they get on defense, we literally just run an old middie off through the midline. And so now they're man up, but they're man up with their D middies and their long stick middie. And so a really good man up team scores 50% of the time. Um, six on six offense scores around 30, 33% of the time, right? So a good man up team has six attackmen in a set play and they're man up for a minute or 30 seconds. So let's say on average 45 seconds and they're still only scoring at 50% of the time and defense, you expect to stop them, you know, 70% of the time. So there's really not that much of a difference. I know it's 20%, but so we're going to say, okay, you're going to be man up for six seconds. It takes our guy three seconds to run to the midline and it takes our other guy three seconds to get in. And so go ahead and run your man up for six seconds with your D middies and see how that works for you. So do us a favor and attack while we're subbing. So then I only have to play defense for four or five seconds until you either throw the ball away, shoot it or score at less than statistically our, our man down defense for six seconds statistically is better than our six on six defense. So our omitties don't know the defense. They don't play one-on-one -on -one defense. They don't waste one minute of our scout time on defense. They're spending their whole day on offense and our D mids are spending their whole day on defense. We have no two way middies. We have no need for that. It's like Tom Brady could never play defense, but he could play attack or he could play quarterback. Yeah. So you could put better players. I could put better defensive guys out there that don't have to play offense. And I could play better, put better offensive players out there that don't have to play defense. And you're killing six seconds every time they decide not to shoot. Yeah. So the guys in the, in the conference, they don't attack that. It's the guys out of conference that, that, you know, they tend to attack it. Um, so it's interesting. And the possession might be a little bit quicker and that's, you know, you make a save and it's uh, going to be good for you. Oh yeah. I mean, when we're riding it back and then, and then if you do clear it and then you do throw it away within five or, so, or even if you score, I mean, I, I'd much rather play defense for six seconds and get scored on than for two minutes and get scored on. Right. So it's happening. We, we, you know, we want, we want the, the, the ball to do to go near the goalie sooner rather than later. And that's the whole early slide. We don't really want to play defense for two. Who wants to play defense for two minutes? Right. So it's really all about the efficiencies at each end and the efficiencies in your ride in the clear um, yeah. and um, not trying to be a jack of all trade. Right. We, we're totally in the specialization, whether it's 10 man riding, early sliding defense, or even just from a personnel standpoint, um, you know, we, we, we want to be as different as possible so that we do our thing for 365 days and you're going against it for only a handful of days. So what are you looking for in an attackman? Uh, so attackman, you know, they need to really be able to handle the ball. Catching the ball is really important. Um, I'm talking like 10 out of 10 or 19 out of 20. Uh, it doesn't do us any good to have attackman that drop the ball two out of 10 times or, you know, even one out of 10. That's, that's, we can't have that. So you got to catch the ball, even if it's a hard feed to the crease or, you know, backside skip pass or whatever, or a, a defenseman trying to get you the ball and it's a 30 yard pass and you break out and you got to make that catch. Um, but you also need to now handle the ball, protect the ball. You can't get stripped against the long sticks. Um, and you don't have to beat the defense. We're asking our midfielders to do that, but our attackmen can't get stripped. They have to catch the ball. And then of course they, they've got to be able to shoot the ball. Um, and we've, we've got to have at least two guys that can feed it. One needs to feed it really well. The other guy needs to feed it decently. And then we need one guy that can really shoot the heck out of it. Um, so, you know, we're looking for more skills in our attack rather than athleticism. If, if we have to rank the importance of it, sure, we'd like all of our attackmen to be able to dodge and use both hands and shoot from the outside and feet. But, you know, we, we do have to specialize to, to win the national championship at Bucknell with the limited resources that we have. Uh, we do have to specialize. So there's an opportunity for everybody out there. You know, and when we have 
when we have our clinics, right? So we have our prospect days at Bucknell. I'll say to the group beforehand, and I speak to the whole group at once, and I'll say, look, you know, you can come to Bucknell and, and play. Um, we're, if, if you want to play at Bucknell, you don't have to be big. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to be skilled. You don't even have to be athletic. But you better be four out of the five. You know, <laughs> if you're – if you're going to be really short, you better be really fast and really skilled and, and really athletic. If you're going to be the slowest guy on the team, that's fine. You can run a five, six, 40, but you better be big, strong and skilled and smart, you know? And, uh, so we, we can specialize, we can plug people in our system, even on offense allows us to specialize. Yeah. It's a package. Um, yeah. and what about, uh, in the goal? Yeah, so in, in the goal, I, I look for goalies that see the ball, you know, and that sounds pretty simple and pretty basic, but when you're evaluating goalies, if I see a goalie give up a goal where the ball is down by his feet and he's up high, he's off my list. Or if I see a goalie go down and the ball goes high, you know, he's off my list. So. I don't want goalies that guess. I mean, someone can come in and have a great day or you can watch him at a camp and he's unbelievable. Um, he might've made 18 saves, but if he gave up two saves where he was wrong, he's, I don't recruit him because he might've had a good day get, guessing, right? So I'm not looking for guessers. If you're on the ball and you're late, I'd, way ra I'd much rather see you give up seven goals and be right on the ball every time and still have maybe seven saves um rather than see you make 15 saves and give give up two goals but the two goals you gave up you guessed wrong i would take the seven and seven guy any day um, so i'm looking for guys that see the ball and have patience and then go get the ball so then the next thing i'm looking for is hand speed right so it's one thing to see it and then it's another thing to be able to go and get it uh so if i have to rank them i'm looking for hand eye the next thing is hand speed. Then the next thing is foot speed. And then the next thing would be size. And uh, then the next thing would be technique. So, you know, out of those five things, technique would be last. Um, but seeing the ball would be first. There's clearly times when you're just not going to make a save on, on the six-yard shot, caught it right in front when they, go, when they throw it low without – if you wait for it, you're not making the save. How do you balance that fact with what you really want out of guys that are, that are patient and, 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 and not guessing? That's a really great question. So, so I probably should have talked about that, but, but yeah, I, I think it's important to guess when the ball is inside six yards um, because you, if you don't guess, you're not going to be able to react, react in time. So if someone guesses wrong in that situation, that doesn't bother me. I actually like that because we teach our goalies to guess, you know, when they're up against it, you know, and, and, and even come out a little bit, you know, and, 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 and shorten the, the angle. Yeah. Uh, so we, 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 we like to dictate at Bucknell, you know, even, even our goalie, mm -hmm. you know, the goalie we have right now is he had, he was having a great year. Um, he's big and quick and he's very aggressive and, and unpredictable. And I think that's really hard to shoot on those kind of guys. Um, you know, because the scouting report on him, I, I would think is really tough because he's not the same every time. Yeah. And that's just his style. And I, that's the other thing too. I would never try to change somebody's style. And we have some guys that we recruit that sit back and some guys that really attack the ball. Um, but that's a really good point. I think it's important to, to make yourself big and, and really try to figure out where the guy's shooting it when you're in tight, because if you react, if you try to react, you probably can't keep it. And are you, um, are you willing to allow a goalie or teach a goalie to use, you, you mentioned step out and cut down some angle, but on outside, like let's just say it's a time and room wing shot. Are you going to sit back or are you going to like give that shooter a little bit less net to see? Uh, it honestly depends on the goalie, you know? I mean, I think that to me, that's, it's a great question because both can be effective. And I think that really depends on the goalie. You know, the goalie we had that was in there for the last four years, he would sit back and he felt more comfortable sitting back. The goalie we have now, he, he would come out. And so 
I think both are effective. Yeah. And uh, I think it's really more about the goalie. So again, I, I don't, I don't really work on technique and I don't work on telling them what to do as much as do what you do best, but do not guess and do not come out of your, your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, a few times during this podcast that you're, you know, tr- uh, talking about winning a national championship. And, and I just want people to realize that you guys knocked off Yale the year they won the championship, um, really could have made a playoff run. Things just didn't work out. The Patriot League is just a total dogfight. And um, I, I was actually at the game. I did the game from the uh, booth when you guys uh, lost a heartbreaker to Virginia in the first round of the 2011 playoffs in which they ended up winning the championship. And you guys, I thought, were the better team on that day. Um, but just uh, just talk to us about the future and where your expectations are for Bucknell lacrosse. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I remember that game. You, you and I think Coach Emmer were, uh, right. were doing the broadcast that day and um, the Virginia game. But, uh, yeah, our expectations are, are our goals are to win the national championship. You know, and obviously it starts with the Patriot League championship, but, but I do think that there's enough parity out there uh, where we are good enough to win the national championship in certain years. And, uh, you know, to be honest and frank, we, we're not good enough to win the national championship every year. Um, now, whether we have or haven't is, is, is not what I'm talking about. It's like, were we good enough? And I think the year you're talking about with Yale, we were good enough that year to win it all if, if things went our way. In the year against Virginia, I think we were good enough to win it all that year if things went our way. But in some years, we're not good enough to win it all. But, um, but our goals would certainly be to win the national championship and certainly to win the Patriot League championship. And as you mentioned, that is a gauntlet. We have nine teams in the league. And the last few years, we've had seven teams ranked in the top 20 at some point in the season yeah. in the league. I mean, that's the most. I mean, the Ivy Leagues don't even have seven teams. Right. Um, you know, when you think about seven teams being ranked in the top 20, that's it's just tough to navigate that. Two years ago, we were ranked, we got the, the, the third seed, even though we tied for first place with Loyola and Navy. We were all seven and one. We all had beaten each other, and, um, and it came down to some tiebreak. So we had to, we had to have a, a first-round game, and the first two teams, the first two seeds had a bye, and so we had to play Boston, and we're up 11-6 in the fourth quarter, and we ended up running out of gas, and, and we lost 12-11. And I thought that team that beat Yale that year at Yale and Loyola at Loyola and Army at Army um, <clears throat> by a lot uh, was good enough to make a run, and we didn't even make it to the semifinals of our own league tournament. Uh, and then we ended up not getting in that large, which was disappointing, but um, – you know, we had two top five wins on the road that year with an 11 and three record and ranked 10th in the country, but they didn't, they didn't think it was a good idea to have us in there. So. Yeah, that was, just, that was disappointing. But uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, you guys um, have a, a great way of playing. It works. It's been working for, you know, 15 years and uh, it will continue to. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Frank. Always great talking lacrosse with you. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. It's great to be on. Great to talk lacrosse with you, my man. All right, brother. Take care. Take care, man.